Well, good morning. If you would, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1 again. Um, we'll begin in verse 19 today. Um, we come to where we're going to consider Hannah's son in this text. Um, hope that helps you remember kind of where we are. Um, we're studying sort of the final turn in the birth narrative of Samuel um, throughout the Old and New Testaments. Uh, there are birth narratives that occur fairly frequently. Um, Isaac, Moses, um, Samson, Samuel, uh, John the Baptist, Jesus, just to name a few. Um, in all of those birth narratives, uh, the birth of that child marks a pivotal point in Israel's history. And the babies are a solution, you might say, to a dire national problem. And, and that's the case as we read about Samuel's birth. Obviously, uh, it's going to take him a while to get there, but we know that's coming. Um, but let's read today's text together. If you would, um, stand with me out of reverence, respect for the Word of God. Let's read 1 Samuel 1, um, verses 19 through 28. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Uh, then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkaniah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, um, for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. Verse 21, the man Elkaniah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Uh, Elkaniah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Verse 24, When she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. You may be seated. Now, just a couple of big-picture notes before we break this text down, um, again, we've mentioned the birth narratives in Scripture. We have to admit um, that those are not the norm. Um, hundreds of years pass, um, in most cases, between the birth of, say, a Moses and a Samson or a Samuel. Um, and even this um, birth of, of Samuel has taken quite a bit of time in the period of the Judges to occur. Um, Israel suffers during those um, stretches because of their disobedience and then finally God moves and there's the birth of a deliverer and we have to understand in, in the bigger picture uh, again that uh, Hannah as we first meet her in these texts is she's not special now she is an incredible woman of faith and we're going to continue to see this in the next week or two um, but in the, the general sense, she's not notable by her, or her lineage or any of those things. She's just kind of a, an average, everyday uh, Israelite at this time. Um, she's not even notable when it comes to her circumstances or her suffering. Um, we have to know in a nation um, like Israel at the time, there were um, other Jewish women uh, longing for children and hearing only silence from the Lord as they prayed. Uh, part of what we see in Hannah that is is notable in, in, that, in that way is just that she was so normal. 
Um, and I believe that's evidence to us that, you know what, you may be here today and you may be perfectly normal. In fact, you may not even be normal. You may be strange, you know, but um, you're not notable. You're not exalted. You're not uh, <clears throat> somebody that just the world stops for. You're just an everyday average person. Well, guess what? God sees you. Um, God loves you. God has a plan for your life. He hears us and he cares for us. I think that's part of what we're to understand as we see him move on Hannah's behalf. But I think we also must remember that we cannot manipulate what he's going to do. Um, not all of our stories end like Hannah's does. In fact, there's, that's probably the one thing that makes her stand out. God moves in an extraordinary fashion for her. And Samuel is the child upon whom all of, of Israel's history kind of turns. Um, that is not the norm. Um, but I, I think, again, the instruction to all of us is that in our pain and our heartache and our suffering, we're to cry out, um, and we're to know that God hears us, that he sees us, um, and that he has a plan, even if it's not exactly what we might prefer. First uh, Peter um, verse five, or chapter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That is true, regardless of who we are, regardless of whether we're Hannah or Moses or Samuel or, or anyone else. God sees us and cares for us just because of who we are. Um, and it's not, again, dependent upon how special we are or anything like that. Um, and so when God does move, as, as he does for Hannah, and as he does, um, I believe, in all of our lives, again, whether it's what we hope for or what we have demanded or not, it is always for our good and his glory. Um, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He does something extraordinary even when he uses the everyday, the average, or even the foolish or the weak. Um, and we need to trust in that. First John 3, um, Beloved, if our hearts does not, con does not condemn us, uh, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, um, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he's commanded us. We all have an opportunity, I believe, to have faith in the Lord, to believe in him. Um, and, as this text mentions, having faith in Christ, we should not miss the connection between this birth narrative in 1 Samuel and Jesus. Um, the, the birth of Christ was the most extraordinary birth um, ever to occur and ever recorded in Scripture. And, and I think even this incident and Hannah's life and the birth of Samuel is meant to foreshadow what God is going to do through Jesus. So we've got to keep uh, our hearts focused on the story of stories as we read even this text. But um, let's press into this text itself. We start with the coming of Samuel, um, verses 19 and 20. Uh, they rose early in the morning and they worshiped before the Lord. Um, then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkaniah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord uh, remembered her. Uh, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. Now, um, I believe verse 19 is meant to show us kind of the change in Hannah's uh, countenance. Uh, they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. It's telling us that, if you remember before her prayer and her interaction with Eli, she had been despondent, she had been fasting, she had refused to take um, part of the family's um, worship there at Shiloh, but now she's participating. 
as as they're about to head home kind of their final action together they had another time of worship um, and so she's there and she's doing that then they return home and the text simply tells us that Elkaniah knew Hannah uh, that's a common Old Testament euphemism um, used multiple times in the book of Genesis uh, euphemism for sex um, then we get the key here and the Lord remembered her now um, you can read that phrase and you can get your theology bent out of shape let's make sure we get that right um, God is not a man that he may forget okay that's not what it means when it says and the Lord remembered her it's not saying he had forgotten her uh, Isaiah um, 49 can a, a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb it's unlikely but it can happen even these may forget yet I God will not forget you um, God does not um, forget listen to Samuel himself um, speaking years later for uh, Samuel 15 and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret um, for he is not a man that he should have regret um, God is not a man that he should lie or have regret or forget I would add so what does it mean when God's word says that he remembered Hannah um, well I think of Genesis 8 1 we studied this text a, a while back but it says that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. If you remember that text, God had made a promise to Noah. He had shut um, Noah and his family uh, and the animals in upon the ark, and he had promised that he would make a way for them, that they would be delivered from the flood, and that's what God did. And so when it says that God remembered Noah, what it's saying is that God moved on his behalf in fulfillment of God's promises to him. Um, that's the simple truth. Exodus chapter 2, 23 through 25 back in the time of Moses during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered what he remembered his covenant with Abraham it's not that he forgot Israel it's not that he forgot Abraham it's that God honored is really what it's saying God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac with Jacob God saw the people of Israel and God knew and so again, if you remember those studies and those texts, um, you remember what they were describing, not God literally remembering something he has forgotten, but God instead taking action on someone's behalf. And that is how salvation works. God sees you. God knows you. God has a plan for your life. God sent Jesus to die for your sins and to make a way for you. And what it takes is a simple understanding that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and trusting in what Jesus Christ has done in order to be saved. And then here's the reality. You cannot lose that salvation because God remembers the covenant he cut with you through the shed blood of Jesus. It's, it's secure, not because of anything we do, but because of who God is. That's part of what this text is trying to help us understand. Uh, God sent Jesus to us when we needed a Savior. Uh, Romans chapter 5, but God shows us his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I would argue that is in a sense God remembering us. He remembered us in our brokenness. He rem remembered us in our sin and he moved on our behalf our behalf since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him um, by him from the wrath of God and it goes on for if while we were enemies um, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life again friends none of us could do anything about our sin we can't work our way to heaven we can't earn forgiveness but God remembered our need he saw us he cared for us he moved on our behalf and provided us a savior and that savior died in our place he took our sins upon him he paid the ransom for our salvation
simple question becomes do you know him have you accepted the free gift of salvation that he offers you and again thankfully see we have a god who cannot forget um, who does not grow angry and reject us even when we stumble and and, and sin god remembers his promise to us um, through the shed blood of jesus christ and he takes action on our behalf and it guarantees our salvation um, and this movement on Hannah's behalf, I believe, is meant to reflect that. Um, he's, um, he's seen her, he's heard her, and, and he remembers his promise to Israel, and I believe because he's promised Israel, and because Israel is in need of a, a deliverer, of a judge, of a man of God, he fulfills his promise to them through answering Hannah's prayer. That's the way this text is working out. First uh, Samuel one twenty, and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, "I've asked for him from the Lord." Um, now, typically in Scripture, when um, you hear someone's name and then you you read, "For she said, I've asked for him from the Lord," it, it means that that phrase is sort of an explanation of where she got the name. Um, that Samuel means, "I've asked for him from the Lord." That's not what his name means and i don't believe that's what she's trying to say here uh, this is one of those times where um you know i'm not a hebrew scholar uh, we have y'all can ask david pate about hebrew scholarship he's probably our most foremost uh, uh scholar when that comes to that but um i believe what most uh, theologians and hebrew scholars would say is that um she's literally um, trying to give praise to the lord here um and we'll see a a continual amount of little wordplay on this phrase. English scholars would call this uh, paranomasia. Um, it's a parallel between similar sounds. Samuel's name doesn't mean I've asked for him from the Lord, but it sounds like the phrase for asked. Um, it, it literally means, um, I've got it written down here somewhere. Um, let's see, name of the Lord, okay? Um, but it sounds like the Hebrew word for ask or requested. And I think that's uh, the wordplay that she's employing. It's a, a rhyming sort of feature. It's not essential to our understanding of the narrative, um, but it is kind of, you know, this is what happens. People come to this, and they want to argue about the wordplay or the name of Samuel or what it means in Hebrew, and they miss the fact that God has um, answered prayer and provided a child and uh, loved Hannah and, and made a way for the nation of Israel. Okay, so keep your eyes on what really matters, okay? Um, but... We'll move on um, to what we certainly can understand. And to me, this is the most encouraging part of this text, especially in light of our current culture, um, the care of Samuel. Now, we're talking about Samuel's family here, and I believe over the past few weeks we've established that the home of his birth has some warts, okay? Elkaniah has engaged in polygamy. Um, his birth mother has a rival, and Elkaniah's second wife, Penaniah. There's plenty of drama and dysfunction there. Okay? And all of it has its genesis, I believe, in Elkanah's disobedience to God. The practice of polygamy is about like adultery. If you want to take an axe to the foundation of your family and, uh, and your marriage, that's one way to do it. Okay? Not recommended ever, okay? period. Um, but also, we do have to admit that Elkaniah, like most of us, yes, he has a sin problem, but he's kind of a complicated fella, and he's not altogether bad, thankfully. He's sort of falling forward in this text. Because despite all of his failures, he does faithfully take his multiple wives and their children and family, in a sense, to Shiloh to worship. 
Well, I, I guess it's better to go to worship than not to go at all. Anybody follow me on that? Okay. I mean, we make fun. We uh, Church settings, well, you know, all those hypocrites going to church. That, that's why I won't go to church. Well, at least the hypocrites are here. Amen? Okay. I mean, you know, sit at home if you want to, but at least the hypocrites have the good intelligence to go to church because that's where God is. Okay. Um, so I, all I'm saying is Elkaniah is clearly troubled. But he does go to worship the Lord. And the point is that most of Israel wasn't at this time. All right? So I think in God's grace, it's a reminder, reminder that he doesn't expect perfection. And he can grant you grace for your failures and your mistakes and still use you, in this case, to raise at least one godly child. Okay? But Samuel turns out pretty well despite the sin of his father. All right? But we go on. Um, and again, we're talking about this faithful father. Uh, the men Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. Um, make sure we get the timing right on all this. Um, they had been in Shiloh worshiping. Hannah prayed to the Lord for a son, uh, made a vow. Uh, she had a conflict with the high priest Eli. Um, it finished better than it started because he first thought she was drunk. Um, uh, the, the family finished their worship. They returned home. Um, Elkanah and Hannah engaged in marital relations. Hannah conceived and gave birth to Samuel. Then Elkaniah took the bulk of the family back with him to Shiloh, okay, um, probably within uh, another year's time. Um, presumably, it doesn't actually say which festival, but would have been one of the three key festivals, I would assume, uh, in the nation of Israel's worship of God, Passover, Festival of Weeks, Festival of Booths. We've seen this scripture multiple times. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. Uh, that was Shiloh at this time where the tabernacle was. Again, not everybody was doing this, but Elkaniah at least is. All right, He's trying to worship the Lord as he's commanded the people of Israel. Yes, he's doing it in outright sin because he's got multiple wives with him as he goes, but at least he's going. All right, And so again, we have to give Elkaniah some credit that this is unusual. Uh, the bulk of the nation of Israel is engaged in idolatry. They'd forsaken faithful worship of the Lord. Um, but he is going. There's even an indication of a bit more here, I, I believe, where it tells us that um, all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice, and then there's that phrase, and to pay his vow. Well, what vow? And that we know of, Elkaniah has not taken a vow, Okay. I believe what the text is saying is that Elkaniah has joined Hannah in her vow regarding the life of Samuel. Um, that's the only real way uh, to read this. We don't get any other specifics. Um, but according to Jewish law, it, you've got to understand that because she has taken a vow independent of Elkaniah, um, and certainly because it involves their firstborn son, he had the right to revoke her vow. Uh, Numbers 30, there's a long treatise on this, but as simply as we can make it, any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself that a, a married woman takes in her household or a um, single lady takes who's still under the authority of her, her father, um, her husband may establish or her husband may make void. Okay? It goes on and... Uh, then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. If he has established them, um, because he has nothing to, um, he said nothing to her on the day that he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after he's heard of them, then she shall bear her iniquity. Basically, the husband either confirms or denies this vow. Um, if he does nothing, it's binding. Um, if he intervenes, it's broken, and she bears the penalty um, for a, uh, in a sense, a hasty vow. Now, you could make a case that this is 
um, it smacks of a patriarchal society. You know, Hannah can't make a vow without Elkaniah, um, in a sense, affirming it. But I, I would be honest with you and say, you know what? No mother has the right to make a decision uh, about uh, her firstborn son without being on the same page with a father, right? Um, and, and I don't want to get too cultural. But you know, eh, I ain't going to mention California right now. Anyway, um, they're trying to say that the government can take a child away from a parent because the parent doesn't affirm the child who decides they're not their birth sex. Anyway, you can look it up. I'm not making it up. I wish I was, but I'm not. Anyway, these kinds of decisions should be made in lockstep, and mom and daddy should be on the same page. Amen? Okay? Uh, and again, our world's broken, and we've got divorces and all these things, and so we have moms and dads making decisions. God's plan is that for mom and dad to agree on the nurture and the admonition and the raising up of a child. Okay? And, and, um, and I believe God's plan is for mom and dad to affirm them as male or female according to how God has created them. But we're not going to preach that message today, all right? Um, anyway, these kinds of decisions should be, um, should be made as God has designed a biblical household to make them, all right? Um, now, let's be honest, too. In our culture today, um, for years, mothers and grandmothers, I believe, have been the spiritual leaders of the average home because men have failed in their responsibilities. Um, now, I think Hannah definitely sets the pace for faithful worship and devotion to the Lord in this house. I don't think there's any doubt about that, and we're going to see it, I, I believe, exalted uh, in another day. I mean, um, if, if Elkanah is not going to be who he needs to be in the Lord, thank goodness Hannah was, okay? And I think she kind of drags Elkanah along. Um, she makes Elkaniah a better man uh, and more faithful to God. I think they both um, grow closer to God because of Hannah in this text. Um, at least it's clear she's not trying to drag him back with her. Um, but he's honoring her vow, I believe. Now let's move on. Uh, a faithful mother. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. There's her vow. Okay, and, and again, I believe simply reading the text as it's written would imply that he knows she's made this vow and he's agreed with this. He's allowing her to do what she's pledged to do um, with Samuel before the Lord. All right. Um, now, again, we see her faith on display here. Uh, she's unable to accompany the family's worship journey to Shiloh um, for good reason. Um, she's, um, we don't know all the timing, but apparently she's given birth by this point, um, and she's um, not yet weaned the child, and so she's not going to travel all the way to Shiloh with him. Um, and, and then she's fulfilling her vow to the Lord regarding Samuel. Now, in Jewish culture at the time, it was typical for children to be weaned by age three. Um, that's the time frame most scholars would speculate is occurring here. Any younger than that uh, would pr place a tremendous burden um, upon Eli and the temple um, I don't know how to explain you know there was a whole group of people who worked in the temple and cared for it and maintained the, the temple household uh, you don't want to just bring a baby who's still nursing and put them into that kind of a scenario and so um, we believe that's why she's going to wean him before she takes him there um, now that's all beside the point but the key is how faithful Hannah is to fulfill her vow Samuel is the the biggest blessing in her life I think we would agree and yet she's focused on doing with him as she's pledged. Uh, let me ask you, friends, how faithful are you to return God's blessings back to him? 
think about it. Uh, one, it would probably be good to count your blessings, you know. But specifically, what about those things you've prayed for, you've desired, and, and God has answered? And are you returning those things, in a sense, to Him? Your health, your finances, your, your family. I mean, I, we got some Texas fans down here. Are y'all excited, you know? I, I knew you would be. Uh, you know, I pick on Texas a lot, so I got to, you know, you prayed for a game like that, I'm sure. So whatever your vow was, you better fulfill it, Jeff. So anyway... Um, just as long as it wasn't against Arkansas, I can live with it. Now, I, I make light of that, but I'm honest, honestly being serious. There are things that we've hungered for, we've prayed for, we've desired. When God gives you those things, what do you do with them? Well, Hannah had prayed for Samuel. It would have been easy for her to say, well, you know, I mean, now I've got a son. Elkaniah's a, well, I won't put a word in there, but, you know, I mean, this is the best I'm going to get. You know, I, I need to treasure this this gift from God. I'm going to keep him with me. She doesn't do that. She fulfills her vow. When you pray for that new job and God answers or that, that healthy child or that new home, God moves on your behalf, how quickly do you begin to hoard those blessings and leave the Lord and his glory out of your calculations? Sometimes answered prayer leads us to pride. It's not a perfect corollary, but it's also not too much of a stretch to say that this relates to our giving. Um, the bulk of the the Israelites at this time in history, they were not giving of their first fruits. That was their practice. I believe that's the New Testament practice too. You're not just because you're under the law, but in general, when God blesses, you're to give of the first fruits back to Him. Uh, Malachi 3 8, will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? And, and this is not a money message, okay? Um, we are behind on budget, by the way. So if anyone, that's why He's preaching on that. I'm just simply saying, here's the reality. This is what happens to the average mindset. Um, anybody realize inflation is happening right now? We, we know it is. So as the cost of things go up and as the cost of living goes up, in general, most people aren't getting paid less, but you know that what you're getting paid is worth less, okay? But if you're giving God of the first fruits, then it really shouldn't affect what you're giving God, should it? You should trust God to make up the difference. Now, again, that's... Sounds easy for a preacher to say, okay? Um, I wouldn't say it if my tithe had changed, by the way. Anyway, that would be hypocrisy. Um, back to the text. Hannah was focused on returning God's blessing in her life back to him, all right? Um, and when you consider her love for Samuel, you have to understand what an incredible act of faith this was. But she was more concerned with obedience to the Lord and the glory of God than her own needs. And admittedly, I think we'll see in the next week or so, there was also, I think she had some understanding that Samuel's not just, just any old boy. I think she knew he was an answer to prayer, and he was going to impact the entire nation of Israel, okay? But uh, let's move on. Third thing here, uh, a faithful family. Oddly enough, with all their warts, verse 23, Elkaniah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now, again, in this case at least, we're reminded that this is united home, at least spiritually speaking. Um, remember when the, the, the high priest first heard Hannah um, praying and rebuked her for being drunk? Well, I, I think we're to see a contrast here. Her husband um, does not respond to her that way. He trusts her heart. He encourages her faith. He's growing into a better man because of her faith, I believe. 
And he says here, may the Lord establish his word. Um, I think it's, it's a, re a reference to believing that God has a plan for Samuel's life. Um, he too has wanted a son, um, but he, he surrendered him to the Lord. Um, establish his word it literally means to confirm or to make stand. Um, Elkanah is praying for God to do whatever he wants to do in, in Samuel's life. And this is that Joshua 21 reference that we read together a bit ago. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. We should pray for God to confirm his word in our lives and in the lives of our children and, um, and trust him to do so. Make it stand. But again, think about the weight of this text and, and, and what uh, Hannah and Elkaniah are willing to do with Samuel, how they're going to surrender him up to the Lord and, and to his service. Is that how we view our children? Are we raising our children up to be living sacrifices? Do you trust God to do the best with them in their lives? Or are you already teaching them that their lives are really yours to do with as you please? Are you going to you know, live your high school sports dream out through them or whatever it may be? Or are, are you going to teach them that you, know, you have six days a week to do what you want and then you give God about three hours on Sunday morning and then you go back to doing what you want to do? See, think about how we do this. Just know that it's never too early to start investing in the spiritual lives of your children. It's funny to me, there are people who literally believe that the difference between their four-year-old getting in the MLB is going to be their t-ball experience, okay? But yet they don't embrace the fact that it's really important for their four-year-old to be in church on Sunday. Oh, you can learn a complicated game like baseball. Let's admit, it has some weird, wacky things, okay? But you can't learn about God... Here's the reality. All the scientists and the experts and not even Christian researchers would agree that the, the worldview of a child is fully developed by age six. The rest of it is just starting to fill in how they're going to live on it. So if you want your child to know the Lord, you better be teaching them when they're two, three, four, five. Why do you think the lost world wants access to the hearts of the children in our culture today? Because if you can confuse a child when they're six, seven, eight, you've got them the rest of their life. Anyway, they're parenting Samuel, and they're doing well, I believe. Um, they're affirming his future and, and how he can trust God with his life. And so in this moment, in this sense, we can agree that he had a faithful family. Um, and I think it was a critical part of his legacy. Um, it's easy to read this and go, well, she took him to the temple by the time he was weaned, by the time he was age three. Yeah. You know what? A lot of crucial development in the hearts of your child occur by the time they're age three. I could give you examples, but I don't want to meddle. Let's move on. Uh, the consecration of Samuel. Last thing here is we wrap up. Um, we read about Hannah fulfilling her vow to the Lord. Um, just again, know that uh, linguist, linguistic scholars and uh, the Hebrew uh, folks who can read in Hebrew would tell you there's, a, there's some wordplay going on here between Samuel's uh, name and the Hebrew words for asked or lent or requested. Um, I've asked of him of the Lord is what she phrases it. Again, it, it's not crucial to our understanding of the text, but I would just simply say this. We have to admit that being followers of Jesus with English as our heart language, with no understanding of the history of Israel, that we miss a lot of what God's Word is really saying. We miss some of the beauty of the text.
okay? Just, I think we have to admit that. I'm looking forward to the day when I'm in heaven and Hebrew's not so hard to learn. Um, and I can read the Bible afresh. Anyway, you may not understand that, but I mean it. Again, not crucial to our understanding of the text, so let's just read and see what we can see. Uh, we see the price here, uh, verses 24 and 25. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her. Now follow this. She's giving Samuel to the service of the Lord, and as she goes to do it, she takes an offering to God with her. You might say, well, she's already given enough. No, not according to her worldview. Along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, skin of wine, she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. There's some disagreement among scholars whether she brought one three-year-old bull or three bulls. It's a big difference, you know, you might say. But anyway, if you do a deep dive into the Levitical laws regarding these kinds of sacrifices... The fact that she has an ephah of flour with her does tend to indicate that she's offering three separate bulls. But again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not going to go out on a limb and tell you which way it should be rendered. Here's what I'm confident to infer from this. Hannah was keeping her original vow to the Lord, and it came at a further price to her. She's not just surrendering Samuel. Uh, she's not just turning him over to the service of the Lord, but she's making an offering to God. She's thanking him for the answer of prayer, and she's doing so at a great cost. Bulls, uh, large quantities of flour for grain offerings, a skin of wine, which would have been likely about six gallons of wine. Um, costly, pricey in their day, and they're all being rendered to God as a gift. And again, I think this is where we kind of have to take a step back and go, well, how do we regard our worship? Here's the American mindset. Most, nobody in this room, but a lot of people would say, God's just lucky I'm at church. He should be lucky I'm here. That's really the mindset. Try to staff a nursery at a church. You have parents that say, you know what, it's enough that I'm here. You take care of my kid. I don't really think that's how Hannah is approaching this. She doesn't see herself as a consumer and as God providing a service back to her. She sees herself as a participant. And um, again, we, we think God should be happy we're here. That's not how God sees our attendance and our worship. Um, God forbid that we refuse to give back. But anyway, uh, don't miss the price of Hannah's offering here. And it's all in addition, again, to the biggest price. She's turning her son over to the service of the Lord for the rest of his life. And oh, by the way, we met Eli. He thought she was a drunken woman, so he's got some judgment issues. We've met his sons. We'll come back to them in a little bit. They're, they're heathen, okay? The text explicitly says they did not know the Lord. They were doing horrible stuff. They're, they're committing adultery in the tabernacle grounds, as we'll see. Okay, And now she's bringing little Samuel, and she's saying, Here, Eli, Hopney, Phineas, take care of my kid for me. You, it's the pledge she made. And I believe it demonstrates that she has faith that even though Eli and Hopney and Phineas had some warts, ultimately she's not surrendering Eli or Samuel to them. She's surrendering Samuel to God. And God's got it. So guess what? If that t-ball coach isn't the best in the business... Well, you can trust God. Anyway, let's move on. Proclamation. Verses 26 and 27. She said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. 
Um, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Um, I, I know this, my heart, and you're probably the same way. Nothing does me more good than to hear people share testimony of, of God's faithfulness in their lives. And, and that's what Hannah does here. Yes, ultimately, Eli is about to have responsibility for Samuel's future, but this is, first and foremost, a proclamation of the faithfulness of God. And I'm sure he remembers her. I mean, he did accuse her, this, this sweet spiritual lady, uh, of being drunk, um, so he probably remembers that occasion. Um, we don't think they necessarily they discussed what she was actually praying about then, um, but now she's holding little Samuel, um, and, and she says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. So whether he knew before now or not, now he's realizing, oh, she was praying about having this kid. And she surrendered him up to the Lord, and now she's brought him to the temple. Um, her phrase, as you live, um, was kind of a, a common form of an oath in their day. She says, oh, my Lord, as you live. Um, Jeremiah 16 has this multiple times. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives. It, it just kind of implies God's in control of this. God is sovereign. This is his covenant name being invoked. As surely as God is who he says he is, he's done what only he could do. That's sort of the way uh, she's pray, praising God here. And, and verse 27 is essentially a verbatim repeat of Eli's blessing um, that we saw in last week's text. Um, verse 17, Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. As the Lord lives, may you get what you're praying about. Um, well, that's what's happened. And so at the core of it all, she's simply giving praise to the Lord and telling Eli that God has done exactly what she had prayed for. He's granted her petition, and she's going to keep her into the arrangement. And that's what we see next, the permanence of this. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. He, meaning Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. Shiloh, this is where he takes up residence. Now, in our culture, the word lent, um, is, it doesn't have a sense of permanence, okay? But it's used here to imply a binding agreement. And again, I believe it's used because it shares a root with that word asked or lent or requested. Again, she's, um, you say wordplay. I don't mean that to say she's trying to be clever. Uh, it's just these words sound an awful lot alike, and I, I think she's giving praise to the faithfulness of God. He, he's done exactly what I've asked him to do. Um, I asked, he answered, now I'm going to continue to do as I should or as, as I promised. Uh, it all kind of flows together. Um, and again, permanence is implied by her final sentence here. As, as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Um, it makes me think of a verse that I've always cherished that challenges me where Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This was not a, a, a decision that she was going to take back. This was not something that was temporary. Now, there are very few individuals in all of God's word who were surrendered over to his purposes at birth. Only three that we know of were expli explicitly bound um, to a Nazaritic vow for life. Samson didn't go so well, by the way. Um, Samuel goes a whole lot better, um, and John the Baptist goes really, really well, okay? It's a pretty elite company, though, if you think about it. Um, maybe Elijah fits in there. He was, after all, a hairy man, meaning he didn't use a razor, but that's, you know, a haircutting joke. Anyway, um, it's really not. I don't know. Regardless, all, all the circumstances uh, of Samuel's birth narrative combined to point us to the truth that his life is going to matter. 
again, it's elite company that he is joining. He's significant in the plan of God for Israel. His life indicates a turning point for the nation. And think about how it starts. Uh, a mother's faithful prayer, uh, a family's faithful honoring of their vow, a three-year-old boy being entrusted to the high priest and those living at the tabernacle. And again, as we've said, that wouldn't have been that easy to do because I wouldn't have wanted my young children around Hopney and Phineas. But Hannah prayed to the Lord for a son. She made God a promise as to her son's life uh, if her petition was granted, and then she followed through on her end of the agreement. I think it all reminds us that, you know what, sometimes obedience is costly. It, it may not make sense, but I'll tell you this, a study of Samuel's life is certainly a reminder that it's worth it. Uh, he makes a difference in the plan of God. And here's where I think we have to kind of turn the corner as our musicians come this morning. If we're being honest, his birth and his life is a type or a picture of Christ. God surrendered his firstborn to a life of service and sacrifice. And as much as it may have hurt, I'm glad that he did it. Amen? Um, and so that's how Hannah, what Hannah did with Samuel to some degree is what God did with Jesus to a way more degree. Uh, Romans 8 we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Because of what Christ has done, we've all been justified and glorified, and we should rejoice in God's goodness anything else i believe this text tells us that god is good and when he's good we should praise him and we should give back to him so let me ask you how you doing you serve a faithful god i, I noticed earlier this morning when we were singing we, we had a few folks standing on that last song felt like there was a, a, a lid in the room almost i don't know what it is you know again we're baptist we don't know how to stand we don't know how to clap we you know, and I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm, I don't have a charismatic bone in my body, to be honest with you. I can't, I can't sing and clap at the same time, okay? And I'm not even joking. You think I am, but I'm not. But here's what I know. We came to worship God this morning, amen? He's not lucky we're here. We're lucky we got to come here. And whether you can sing or, or dance or clap or whatever it may be, I, I know this. There's not a person in this room who's not blessed. Uh, you can be glass half empty, but sometimes I, for one, need to be challenged. Glass is always a little bit more full than I like to give it credit for. Because God is good. God is faithful. God is just. God is merciful. God is gracious. So if you're here today, why don't we, if nothing else, use this last song to give praise to the goodness of God. If you have a response to make, now's the time to make it. Let's stand and respond to him.